welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. So we're just going to dive in. If you've got your Bibles with you, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 20. You can go ahead and turn there. One of the most prolific characters in our culture is a person named Robin Hood. How many of you heard of Robin Hood? Let me see your hands. Very good. You know, green, bow and arrow, looks like Peter Pan, but immensely more cool. If you look at Robin Hood, Robin Hood has been around since the 15th century. These tales of this individual started in ballads and tales, and then they became children's books. It later became a Disney movie. We've seen movies with Russell Crowe and Kevin Costner, both starring as Robin Hood, and Mel Brooks and his, and his comedic classic um, did one Robin Hood Men in Tights. I'm not recommending that movie, but it's just something that people are familiar with. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Robin Hood, the story centers on an individual who returns from the Crusades to find his homeland completely devastated by those who are in charge of it. We're introduced in the story to two characters of rotten character, I guess you could say. Number one is a guy named the Sheriff of Nottingham who uses his ability to, to use the law to overtax the people and steal their lands for them. He gets away with this because he's in tight with the other bad guy of the story, Prince John, who is the brother to the rightful king, King Richard. As time goes on, this is actual historical fact, not just, not just a story. As time goes on, Prince John assumes that because his brother is away from the kingdom, his brother is off fighting the Crusades, and he hasn't come back, he assumes that King Richard has died, and he begins to teach others that the king is dead and that Prince John is the rightful king. And in doing so he completely destroys England with the exception of one man. Robin Hood, who suffers through the reign of Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham, but waits for the rightful king to return, remaining loyal to him. Fighting against the oppression of the false government, and then keeping loyal to the rightful and true king. When the day comes that King Richard returns, Prince John is banished from the country, his power is stripped from him, and Robin Hood is rewarded for his loyalty. Now here's what I've come to find about stories that are very popular in our culture. Is most of the stories that we know and we love and are prominent have tie-ins with the gospel. They tell the same story using different characters that the Bible that you're holding tells. Think about Robin Hood for just a second. What does that tell you? It tells you a story of an unrightful king trying to take power from a rightful king. And one day the rightful king returns and rewards those who are loyal to him. That's what this Bible is about, and that's what we're going to learn today as we, as we dive into the book of Revelation, is the story of us currently living under the reign of Satan, who is asserting that this world is his kingdom. But you and I, we remain loyal to King Jesus, and we wait for his return when he will banish Satan from this earth. Amen? That's what we're going to learn about today. If you're just joining us, we've been in a series for the past several weeks called Bookends. And you may remember on the first week, I brought the book up here, the Louis L'Amour book, and I read probably just a little bit too long, the first page and the last page. And the concept of this, this series is if you really want to know the essence of a book, the whole book is important, but you can get the eagle eye view of the essence of a book by reading the first page of the book and seeing what the problem is and reading the last page of the book and seeing what the resolution is. Over the past several weeks, we've been reading in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and we see the creation of the world, the creation of man, the introduction of God, the introduction of sin into the 
the world and we're left with this problem. What are we going to do now that we have this sin within us? And the rest of the book takes us through a process that brings us to Revelation chapter 21, or 20, 21, and 22 that gives us the ultimate resolution of how God is going to fix the problems that we created. The middle of this book, the story goes through many different parts. I don't have time to list them all, but God raises up a man named Abraham and he creates a lineage of his people. He gives them the law, which is the rules of relationships. He guides his people. He promises them a Messiah. He establishes a lineage of kings in his people. We then see the birth, life, death, and resurrection of this Messiah, God himself with us, Jesus Christ. We see the establishment of the church and the giving of the Holy Spirit, the commission to the disciples to go and make more disciples. And the ultimate resolution, all of this is building towards the point where Jesus returns, he defeats sin, he defeats death, he rewards those who are loyal to him and punishes those who reject him. That is what this Bible ultimately moves towards. So we're going to see here the end of the story of the book of Revelation. Now, we talked about this Wednesday night. Many of you may be curious about the book of Revelation. It is the hardest thing to teach because it has not happened yet. I can't look back and say, oh, yeah, in history this happened. This is God's promise to us. It is a prophecy. It is a promise of how he is going to bring this world back in submission to him. It is a promise of one day for you and me, if we are found in Christ, that all of the sin, the shame, the brokenness, and the hurt we feel will be wiped away from the earth because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, if you look at the book of Revelation, I'll just give you a quick overview. I know we've overviewed to death already this morning. But, but just a really quick overview of the book of Revelation. It deals with the end of time. The Apostle John is drawn into a vision and God shows him what he is going to do in the future and promises us what he's going to do. And the, the basis of the book is God uses a time of tribulation to polarize the whole world. During the tribulation, the world will choose. You will either follow Jesus Christ with your whole heart or you will reject him with your whole heart. There will be no more going to church on Christmas and Easter because that's what grandma taught us to do. You will either love him and devote your whole life to him or you will reject and you will hate him with everything that you have. And at the end of this story, we see Jesus coming back in the great battle of Armageddon where the nations of the world who have rejected him battle Christ as he rides, rides back into the world on a white horse and he defeats them. Never before have people been able to see the final result of a battle. Never before have you been able to walk into something and see exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to end. I didn't see the end of the Razorback game coming yesterday. I wish I could have. I could have guessed. I could have told you what I thought the score was. But never before has somebody been able to look at something and say, this event, then this event, then this event, then this event, then this event leads to this resolution. But that's what the book of Revelation does for us. It tells us exactly how the story ends. And it tells us exactly, exactly why we have hope for the future. That's where we're picking up today. We're beginning with the new reality. The king in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ, has returned. If you've still got your Bibles open, read with me verses 20 or chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 so John speaking here he says then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan uh, devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit everybody say amen, amen. 
and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Keep your Bibles open. We will come back. Your first take-home truth this morning and maybe the ultimate take-home truth ever spoken from here. Number one, Jesus will reign as king and those who oppose him will be defeated. This is a scripture, or this is a promise from scripture. I could promise you this. I'm not going to promise you this. I'm nobody. I'm a man on a stage with a book. But God promises us this, is that one day Jesus Christ will reign as king, and those that oppose him will be defeated. And as we look at the world today, this is where we find our hope. Are you sick of the world? I'm sick of funerals. I'm sick of politics. I'm sick of people hurting. I'm sick of people dying. I'm sick of people being sick. I'm sick of it all. And as we walk through this world in that reality, you and I as followers of Christ, we grab to this one truth, this one hope. One day, God will fix it. He's promised us he will. One day, this will be a distant memory. If that, one day God will fix it. I think of my daughter and her reality as a three-year-old. If she has a boo-boo, the world is ending. Last night we were praying. She said, Daddy, can you pray for my boo-boo? I said, I'll pray for that thing. And her reality, those things are imminent. They are everything. But you know what? I'm older and I realize this. You know what? In two or three days, she's not going to remember she scraped her knee. And that's the way the Bible lays out our reality now. One day, everything we experience, though it is everything to us, will be wiped away. Isn't that amazing? We see here that God is going to deal for the first time with Satan. Now, you remember from Genesis 3, the creature that came in and introduced sin to Adam and Eve and basically destroyed cre creation was a serpent, a snake. And here, what does it say? The serpent of old, that is Satan or the devil. And what happens to him is at the end of this battle of Armageddon, when, when he comes to fight against Jesus Christ and he has been running free, he brings the nations with him. He is chained and thrown in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. You know, people say that God has a sense of humor and I believe it because when we think of satan and jesus the way we typically think about it is like the force of good and the force of evil and they're wrestling and they're fighting each other i've even seen pictures of jesus arm wrestling satan and he's all determined like he's uncle sam getting ready to fight the soviet union like, like i've seen those pictures and, and we tend to look at this like okay if if good is going to defeat evil if jesus is finally going to defeat satan there should be like a wrestling match with jesus coming out on top but i love this sense of humor god sends an angel it's not, it's not even really a forethought. It's not like, a, oh, we've got to defeat Satan. He's like, would you, go, would you go tie him up and throw him in the pit? It's the equivalent. Listen, Jesus and Satan is the equivalent of when a dad says, hey, kids, put the dog in a cage. That's all the power Satan has. And he's bound up and he's thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. I love that. Keep reading with me in this story as we continue on through the last bit of human history. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, the beast there is the Antichrist, or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived... Wait a second, that can't be right. I saw those who had been beheaded with the witness of Jesus, and they lived... We'll get back to that in a second. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This passage defines what we call the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus Christ will come back into this world bodily in form and he will step foot in Jerusalem and he will set up a government and for 1,000 years he will be the king. He, he will stand here and here's what is great about this is he will set up a government during this time and as he returns and he rules those that rule under him and are priests to him are believers who have died. Do you love somebody who you know love Jesus and they've left us already? One day they will live again and they will reign and rule under Jesus Christ, this millennial kingdom. I've got, I've got bad news for us. I've got bad news for us. Very likely you are going to die. I'm sorry, I know that's not what you want to hear at church. Like, hey, welcome to Ramsey Heights. Prepare for your funeral. But it's the truth. Unless Christ comes back and gets us before that time, very likely people in this room will come to your funeral and they will lay your body in a box and they will bury that box under the ground. That is a truth of life. As a matter of fact, it is a side effect of living that you will die. But here, here's the promise of Scripture, is that for those that are found in Jesus, those who have died in Him will be resurrected again. The Bible says this is the first resurrection. We know that word. We use it at Easter, right? Jesus was dead. They buried Him. They went to His funeral. They didn't put Him in a box. They put Him in a tomb. And then three days later, of His own power, He comes back to life. He was dead, and now He's alive. And here's what the Bible promises. For us as believers that know Him, we will live again. Eternal life is not just I die and my soul floats on a cloud with a harp. One day he is going to undo death that sin brought to us. He will wipe it away. He will restore us and he will make us new. We will be sinless forever and with him forever in complete harmony. That is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. Because he promises you, you will bodily live forever. Well, how do I know that you can promise me that? Because I did it. I was dead and I brought myself back to life. If I can bring myself back to life, I can bring you back to life is what Christ says to us. So one day, one day we will be resurrected like him and with him. Your second take home truth is in Christ, we will live again. And for a thousand years, we will be rulers and priests in his government. Over this time, you and me will be with him. And here's what the Bible promises us, is if we are found in Christ, if we are saved, if we are his, it says the second death has no power over us. Now, I love the way that the Bible puts this out. The Bible is dividing up all of humanity into two groups. Don't miss, don't miss what it says here. Your next take home truth, number three coming up, point A. Uh, there is a division of people. The first, point A, is those of the first resurrection. If you are a believer in Christ, that's you and me. We will be brought back to life because we place our faith in Jesus because of what he did on the cross. We will reign with him for a thousand years during this reign, and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. That's the first group. But you notice here it says... That over these people, the second death has no power. So if over this group of people, they do not experience the second death, but somebody has to experience the second death, that will be another group of people. So your next take home truth point B here is the division of people. There are those of the second death. 
Now hang on to that because I'm going to come back and I'm going to describe it more when the scripture talks about it more. But let me, let me just say this. The entire key to this entire message, this entire scripture as it is given to us by God is the question, which one of those two groups of people do you belong to? When this time comes, and it will come, and it may seem like it's a long way in the future, and it may see, seem improbable, this may be in 10 years, this may be in 100 years, it may be in 1,000 years, but it will come quickly. Which group of people do you belong to? Those of the first resurrection or those of the second death? Let's keep reading through our scripture if you've got your Bible still open. We're going to do this whole chapter, by the way, so stick with me with your Bibles. Verses 7 through 10. Now when the thousand years have expired, so now we've skipped forward a thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather, to them, and gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's Jerusalem where Jesus is reigning. All those who believe in Christ have retreated back to Jerusalem in this. And fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. So after this thousand year rule of Jesus, Satan has been tied up. He can no longer deceive the nations. But after a thousand years, God lets him out of the bottomless pit. Why? We'll have to ask God one day. It seems to me like you've got that guy kind of tied up somewhere. You leave him there, but God has different plans. But here's what I think. This is an opinion. I think God once again wants the world to be polarized. I want to know who will follow me and love me with, my, with their whole heart. And I want to know who will reject me with their whole heart. And immediately when Satan is released, he doesn't repent and say, oh, I messed up. Immediately he goes out into the world and he begins to work in the power of the nations and he begins to cause them to want to rebel against Jesus. And he puts together an army to try to attack and overthrow Jesus and his righteous rule once again. Now, now why would you rebel against Jesus? It seems to me that if you had a righteous and a good king who ruled the world, you would not want to rebel against him. But what we see in us is we have this, this nature that doesn't want to be told what to do by anybody, especially not God. When we use the word sin, that's what that word means. Sin means I reject God. I rebel against him. In human nature through this thousand years, there will still be those who reject and rebel against God. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us, this is in Psalm chapter 2. The Bible tells us that Jesus will be a no-tolerance ruler during this time. Today I, that's God the Father speaking, have begotten you. Who did God begot? His only begotten Son? Who is God the Father's only begotten Son? Thank you, thank you. I was going to say, we're going to have to go back to John 3, 16. We'll skip Revelation. Today I have begotten you, speaking of Jesus, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them. Listen to how Jesus rules. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is a no-nonsense king. He doesn't have to be a nonsense, a nonsense king because he is the king of kings. In Zechariah 14, there's a prophecy that during this time, Egypt will rebel against Jesus. Jesus immediately strikes back at them by withholding rain from them and basically starving them into submission. What was their sin? They choose not to celebrate one holiday that points to Jesus. And for that, Jesus takes rain from them. 
During this time, he will rule with a rod of iron. He is not the, the friendly Jesus that we think of. He is the no-tolerance king that you will obey. And under this scenario, Satan is released. He goes out into the nations and he creates an army of people who were tired of Jesus and said, let's overthrow them. And during this time, those who are living must pick a side. Now, I love Revelation with this. Just like I was talking about with Satan being thrown in the abyss earlier, uh, God sends an angel to go put up the puppy. Like, it's not a big deal. Every time Satan comes up against God, it, it, it portrays it like there's going to be this huge battle, and then it'll just be like, and when God had won, that, that's all it says. And in this case, it says, here, they're moving on Jerusalem. They're going to try to overthrow Jesus. And as they're getting close, immediately fire comes from heaven and destroys them. It's over. And this is the last rebellion Jesus Christ will ever tolerate against him and his righteousness. It says this time Satan is not just thrown in the bottomless pit. This time he is thrown in the lake of fire. Sounds dramatic, doesn't it? Sounds like one of those fair rides that they bring that probably is going to break when you're halfway through it. Scott knows what I'm talking about. You know the roller coasters go this high? The lake of fire. And in, in this sense, it is dramatic, but understand the lake of fire is eternal. Very quickly, what is the lake of fire? Your next take-home truth. The lake of fire is a place of punishment. Lake of fire is a place of punishment. That's point A. So Satan is thrown here. Chapter 19 tells us the beast, which is the Antichrist and the false prophet, are thrown here. The, place, uh, the lake of fire is a place of punishment for those who rebel. Next take home truth, point B. The lake of fire is a place of existence. You notice here in verse, I think it's verse 19, it says this is where the beast and the false prophet are. That's a very important word. Because R says currently. It doesn't say where they were. When we think of fire, we think of something that consumes and destroys. I throw limbs into the fire, they are there, and then they were there. But this lake of fire does not consume and destroy. It is a place where people are, a place of existence. Point C on your take-home truth it is a place of torment. Notice it did not say a place of torture. One of the misconceptions about hell and eternity away from God is that there's this place underground where the demons take joy and delight in torturing people. You see videos of it and they're poking them with sticks and stretching them out on the rack. No, the demons of Satan will be thrown here to be punished as well. They're not in charge of this place. It's a place of torment, which can mean physical, but it also means a place of mental suffering. Fire sounds unpleasant, but listen to me. The biggest punishment of the lake of fire is being cut off from the goodness of God forever. This is a place where there will be no goodness of God whatsoever. And I've heard people say to me, you know, all my buddies are going to be there and we'll just party just like we do here. No, that's not how it's going to work. The reason for that is, is that while you were alive, you experienced the grace of God. Let me explain. We often talk about the grace of God as his love and his mercy on us, his ability to save us and his desire to save us. But as you sit here, whether you accept his grace and his salvation or not, you experience the grace of God because he gives you good things. It's called common grace, things that he gives to everybody out of his love, whether you love him or reject him. He gives you good things. The Bible says this. It says it rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. And there are things that you experience in your life right now that are given to you by the grace of God. Do you love somebody? A spouse? A child? Your parents? The guy that has a cool truck at school that you stalk around? You know who you are? 
Like, like, do you love somebody? Did you know love is a part of who God is? And it's something that he gives us to as, or gives to us as part of his common grace? Have you ever noticed that you eat something different every night because you like the flavor? And it's a blessing that this animal tastes different than this animal and this vegetable. Actually, all vegetables taste the same. They all taste horrible, so never mind. All those things are common grace. Those are things that God has blessed us with. It's part of life. It's part of being loved by him that he gives us. But listen, in the lake of fire, in the lake of fire, there is no common grace. There is no love. There is no happiness. There is no taste. There is no rain. There there is no companionship. There is no friendliness. There is nothing that you enjoy in this life will be here. It's a place of shame. Last point on this, point D, is the lake of fire is an eternal place. It says here that Satan will be here forever and ever without end. Now that's important because we're going to begin reading here in verse 11. It's going to tell us something else. Read with me. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were open. And another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works." Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. As John looks up, he sees Satan thrown into the lake of fire, and he sees suddenly this throne, and this throne has an individual on it who is terrifying, and when earth and heaven see his face, they run away. And I know what you're thinking, why is Larry on the throne? Because that's the face I want to run away from. I worked hard on that, guys. Larry, I love you. It's not Larry on the throne. It's Jesus Christ. But listen, this is not the cuddly Jesus who wants to hear your prayers. This is not the cuddly Jesus who wants to give you a hug when you're having a bad day. This is Jesus the King who rules in purity and righteousness in all of his glory. And for those that have rejected him, it is a terrifying sight. Nobody wants to see this Jesus sitting on the great white throne. Your next take on truth number five is Jesus will judge the world in purity and power. Now, who will he judge here? It says the dead. The dead are brought before him. Now, I want to remind you, where are believers at at this time? Are believers dead? Believers have been resurrected. We're a part of the first resurrection. So those that come before Jesus Christ here are those who have, who have died rejecting him. It says that the sea, death, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. That's both physical and spiritual. Give up the dead and they stand before Jesus and books are open. And let me tell you about these books. These books have a record of everything that you've ever done in it. And you stand in front of the perfect and righteous judge. And they read them against you like an indictment. Maybe not you if you're a believer, but this is what's going to be happening. Here are the actions that happen. And those actions are judged against the standard, listen to me, this is important, of perfection. You're not judged on, did you have more good than you had bad in your life? You're not judged on, are you better than your neighbor? You're not, you're not judged against anything except for perfection. And here's what it says, nobody passes this test. I think the Bible is serious when it says there are none righteous, no, not one. If you stand before God on the merit of your actions, judged based on perfection, you will fail the test. And all those who do come here do fill the test. Verse 15 says this, 
Anyone not found in the book of life, anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Every single person who was judged by the merit of their actions was cast in the lake of fire. Here's that second group of people. Here's that second group of people. This is the second death. I don't believe in scare tactics, but I do believe in forming you on truth. And this is what the Bible promises us will happen in the last days. And for some of you, you're coming to church every Sunday or every once in a while, and you're coming here, and one of the things that's being written in your book is that you come here, the gospel is presented, and you feel God knocking on your heart and saying, I want you, and you run away. And if you do not accept him as your savior, one day you will stand before him, and he will ask you the question, when I gave you the opportunity to accept me, why did you run? And there will be no answer for that. The Bible calls this the second death. You die the first time physically, the second time you die, and you are away from Christ forever. See, understand this. Uh, the, people, the people not judged by their actions are the ones who are judged by the actions of Jesus Christ, those who trusted in him and his goodness, and their name is written in a different book, the book of life. The book of life is this. It is simply a record a record of who was saved. And it's important because those of us written in the book of life are the only people who don't experience the lake of fire. You notice that the standard here is not the good people are written in the book of life. This may make some of us mad. It's not the Baptists who are written in the book of life. Not those who gave money to church or owned or read a Bible. It's not church members who are in the book of life. It's not those who live by morals. It's not those with a doctrinally supreme understanding. It is only people who have accepted the free gift of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. Listen, if you came here this morning, I want you to understand why you're here. You did not come here to worship to make yourself acceptable to God. You came here to worship because God has loved you enough to make you acceptable to Him. Being here does us no good except for, except for, um, except for praising Him. If we could have the musicians. The only thing we have to do to have our name written in the book of life is choose to receive Him. I've asked Rick this morning, this morning to sing a song. You've heard it. The chorus goes like this, and we're going to sing it here in just a minute. It says, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story, a sinner has come home. For there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, never more to roam. There's a verse that goes with that. It says this, I was humbly kneeling at the cross, fearing naught but God's angry frown. When, I, when the heavens opened up and I saw that my name was written down. This is what I want to ask you today, is if your name is written in the book of life. When we come here, we have a, a reflection time, a time of singing every, every single time we come here. And the reason for that is, is we come here and we come in contact with the holy living word of God and it should change us and we should leave here different every time. Now today, everybody in this room should leave here different. You should leave here today, if you are belonging to Christ, you should leave here with a renewed heart of worship that the only way that your, heart, that your name is written in the book of life is because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, that he paid for your sins, and for that reason, we get to be with him forever. But there's others of you that are here. I've not lied to you. I've told you what God has told you. And today, your response should be this to turn away from your sins and to turn to Jesus Christ. And if you will do that, your eternity will be changed in an instant. 
I don't stand up here because I think I'm good looking. I stand up here because I'm waiting on you to come receive Christ. That is your response today. As we sing, I want you to ask yourself a question. Is my name written down in the book of life? Let's stand and worship. Thank you for joining us this week at Ramsey Heights. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And if you did, feel free to share it with others. If we can help you begin to follow Jesus or grow in your relationship with Him, join us on Sundays or connect with us on social media or our website, RamseyHeightsFamily.online.